Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello everyone, welcome back. It's uh, 2019. Happy New Year. I hope you've all had a, a safe and happy time over the Christmas New Year break. Um, uh, but we're back at work and hope you're back at work and happy in, about it as well. Uh, Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 183, the first of 2019. Uh, and the first of, um, not a series exactly, but we're going to um, every now and then come back to basics. So we're looking at uh, some basic concepts with this episode. Um, just to explain to people, uh, we've actually had a few calls actually um, during the break um, saying, look, the, the podcast is fine. Can every now and then you deal with something that's a bit uh, a bit more basic so that uh, perhaps we can play it to clients or just to explain to all the listeners out there some, some of the more basic things to do with taxation. For instance, Division 7A. And so I'm going to be dealing with uh, Division 7A uh, in a basic sort of way today and then later on have a look at the tax gap, which is the amount of tax that the uh, revenue that the government expects to get in and the amount that they do get in, it always falls a bit short. And we'll just have a quick look at why that might be. Okay, I'm your host, Steve Burnham. I didn't, I failed to mention that, but anyway, I assume that everyone knows. But anyway, Division 7A, let's have a quick look at Division 7A. It's uh, Division 7A, Part 3 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936. And now it's an integrity measure that was designed to prevent companies from making tax-free distributions to shareholders or associates. Um, this tax-free distributions meaning, well, when there are distributions of profit, like a dividend, uh, sometimes that can be disguised, as it were, as loans or some other transaction, um, which kind of allows the shareholder, the receiver of that, uh, to um, to access the corporate tax rate when they should be paying the uh, their own personal marginal tax rate. Now, the consequence of Division 7A applying to certain loans and other transactions is that an unfranked dividend is taken to be paid to the shareholder or associate in the year the loan is made or this, uh, this transaction occurs. Now, the transactions I'm talking about are, are loans, other payments, forgiven debts, um, using company assets. I mean, maybe the company might own a, a building, a house, say, in another, another city, and the uh, shareholder or associate can make, have, make use of that, that house. Um, unpaid present entitlements from a trust. So if a beneficiary of a trust is kind of owed a distribution, uh, but they're not actually not actually paid that distribution yet. They're still they still owe tax. Uh, they're, they're known as unpaid present entitlements, which is another thing. Well, we can do that in, in another back to basics. Um, Div seven A can also apply to like guarantees and indemnities that the shareholder might enjoy. Now, the definition of a loan under Division seven A is broad, and includes, and I'll quote, the provision of financial accommodation. Now, to explain that, the um, well, the ADO has adopted the position that unpaid prison entitlements arising after December 16, 2009 by a trust that are not paid or held on sub-trust for the benefit of a, the private company beneficiary amount to the private company providing financial accommodation to that trust. Now, generally, transactions involving unrelated parties are not subject to Div 7A. However, um, if the transaction involves a shareholder of a private company or an associate, it will be subject to Div, Div 7A. Um, an associate, 
is very broadly defined as best if you go to the legislation if you're interested in that section. Uh, yeah, S318 of the ITAA 36. But among others, the, it can, it says it can include a spouse, child, a relative, um, a trust in which the shareholder or associate is a beneficiary, um, <clears throat> or a company under the control of the shareholder or associate, or partner in partnership with the shareholder. Now, if the shareholder in the private company is a trust, the beneficiary of the trust is also an associate of the private company, regardless of the beneficiary's level of control over the trust. Now, so Division 7A, <coughs> um, I think two budgets ago, uh, the, the government has stated that it will clarify the operation of Div 7A to make sure there's more clarity about when unpaid prison entitlements come within the scope of Div 7A. Div 7A requires benefits provided by private companies to related taxpayers to be taxed of dividends unless they are structured as <coughs> bona fide Div 7A loans, or another exception applies. Uh, this will ensure the uh, unpaid prison entitlement is either required to be repaid to the private company over time as a complying loan or be subject to tax as a dividend. Fair enough. Now, also announced <coughs> a couple of budgets ago was that the start date of uh, other differently measures was to be deferred and amendments were announced, actually amendments were announced in the 2016-17 budget um, that were going to kick in from July 1, 2018 are now going to kick in July 1, 2019, this year. Now, among other changes, this includes the self-correction mechanism, providing taxpayers whose arrangements had inadvertently tri triggered uh, DIF 7A. Uh, it gives them the opportunity to voluntarily correct arrangements without getting fined or having another penalty. Um, there's going to be new safe harbour rules, such as the use of assets, you know, still of that house I mentioned, possibly, to provide certainty and simplify compliance for taxpayers. And also they were going to bring in amended rules with some transitional arrangements um, regarding complying DIF 7A loans, <clears throat> having a single compliant loan over 10 years rather than the, the there was a, I think it was a 25 year loan period. Anyway, I'll get back to that if that's okay. Uh, and better aligning the calculation of the minimum interest rate with commercial transactions. Now that that is has come about. Actually, um, Ken Mansell had a recent um, webinar, and we have recorded it. And those changes that I just mentioned, uh, there was, that's right, seven or 25-year loans. It's going to be a single 10-year loan, different calculation methods. Uh, the benchmark interest rate is going to match uh, the small business and overdraft indicator lending rate, which is currently 8.3%. Um, it's no longer going to be a need for a formal written loan agreement, but you've got to have some evidence. There's a whole lot of changes anyway, but the, the Ken Mansell... Uh, webinar recording is available if you go to our website or just search on our website for recent and upcoming changes to Div 7A. You should find that webinar recording and that'll uh, spell out all the changes. Anyway, back to where we were. Um, common traps for Div 7A that people complain about sometimes. Um, just quickly go through what those common traps might be. Now, there are loans to associated trusts. Now, a loan from a private company to a trust that is an associate of the company are subject to Div 7A regardless of how the loan proceeds are applied. So, look, it's common for trusts to borrow funds to buy, uh, you know, income-producing assets. In these sort of scenarios, the loan may still um, be subject to Div 7A, not, notwithstanding the interest would be otherwise deductible to the trust. Um, 
Note, however, that a genuine movement of cash to a business for legitimate purposes does not necessarily mean that Div 7A applies, so it's not, uh, it's not certain. So you can manage loans to avoid Div 7A. There are a few strategies that can be adopted to ensure loans do not unintentionally result in um, deemed dividends. Uh, you can repay the loan to the company in cash before the company's lodgement day. Declare dividends from the company to the shareholder, fine. Uh, transfer property of the company valued at or greater than the loan balance, enter into a Div 7A complying loan agreement, or set off mutual obligations between the company and the shareholder or associate. So minimum loan repayments must be made by the end of the financial year, or 30 June, where the Division 7A complying loan agreement is in place. Where minimum loan repayments are not made in relation to a loan, uh, a deemed dividend is taken to be paid in the income year where the shortfall occurs. Note, however, that the amount of the deemed dividend cannot exceed the shortfall with respect to the minimum unpaid loan repayment. Uh, it's not uncommon for loan accounts to contain a range of different entries based on cash transactions, credit card purchases, journals or dividends. So each transaction posted through a loan account should be carefully analysed to determine what the underlying transaction relates to. That can be a bit of a trap. Um, it's significant that you need to um, make any payments before the company's lodgement day. Um, once a loan has been made to which Div 7A applies, a deemed dividend can be avoided if the loan is repaid before the lodgement day of the company's tax return for the year in which the, uh, the loan was made. There's an example. Um, for loans made in the year ending, say let's go back to last year, 30th of June 2018, the deadline for repayment of the loan or putting in place a complying loan agreement is the day before the company's tax return is due which will be May 14, 2019, if the due date is May 15, 2019. Got to be aware of the back-to-back -back loan arrangements. They, this can arise in situations where the shareholder or associate has an existing loan from a private company, which is repaid from funds obtained from a new loan. Hmm. Under Div 7A, any repayments made against a loan in such an arrangement will be disregarded. So it's the company's distributable surplus that's at the centre of Div 7A because the extent of any accessible deemed dividend is limited to the distributable surplus, which is determined at the end of the relevant income year. So a deemed dividend will therefore be reduced to nil if the company does not have a distributable surplus at the end of that year. Now there's a formula for calculating distributable surplus. It's best uh, if you go to the um, this bit of legislation, section 109Y, ITAA 36. Um, that's the best way to get a, a visual grab on what the formula is. The net assets compo component of a distributable surplus formula is calculated based on the company's financial position at the end of the financial year, or June 30. A, a common shortcut is to review the balance sheet and identify that the company has a substantial deficiency of net assets and therefore no distributable surplus or negative distributable surplus. <clears throat> but the net assets component, component of the formula can only ever be nil or a positive number. Also, the, a deficiency of net assets doesn't necessarily preclude the company from having a distributable surplus. Division 7A amounts is an addition to the formula for distributable surplus and has caught many by surprise. This was introduced in 2010 to overcome a loophole in Div 7A which allowed a private company to forgive debts before the end of the financial year in order to avoid the operation of Div 7A. 
Now, the um, <clears throat> legislation describes Div 7A amounts as meaning uh, the total of amounts the company has taken to pay under Section 109C or Section 109F, apart from this section, uh, which relates to payments and forgiven debts, respectively. But a common trap is for a loan to occur during the year and then to determine that the company has no distributable surplus. Uh, as a result of there being no distributable surplus, the loan is forgiven and written off the books. However, the process of writing off the loan can in itself trigger a deemed dividend because the amount of the loan written off will be included in the distributable surplus formula as Division 7A amounts. Let's talk about quarantined non-commercial loans. Well, the uh, non-commercial loan component of the distributable surplus formula relates to amounts that are shown as loans in the company's accounting records, which have already given rise to deemed dividends in the past. It's, uh, it's common for companies which have advanced loans to shareholders or their associates in a year in which there was no distributable surplus to quarantine these loans. Now, a potential trap is to mistakenly classify such quarantined loans as non-commercial loans in a subsequent year. Now, whilst the quarantine loan has technically given rise to a deemed dividend for Division 7A purposes in the past, it is the amount of the assessable deemed dividend which is relevant and not the original face value of the loan. Um, one last point, uh, don't forget to recognise all company liabilities. Where provisions for annual leave and long service leave are not recognised in the company's accounting records, these should be taken into consideration by subtracting them from the company's net assets for the purpose of the distributable surplus calculation. Um, the Commissioner accepts that under that uh, sorry, unpaid PAYG instalments and income tax liabilities amount to a present legal obligation and should be subtracted from the net assets of the company. Um, that's a very basic rundown, but look, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there is a recorded webinar, that, a very informative recorded webinar presented by Ken Mansell that was um, uh, recorded uh, in November last uh, 2018 that is available for, um, uh, for you if you wanted to, as I said, go to the taxandsuperaustralia.com.au website uh, search for recent and un upcoming changes to Div 7A. It's in our webinar recording section. Hopefully you'll be able to find it. If not, drop me an email and I can um, send you a link. All right, uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, so um, thanks for bearing with me. Um, let's get on to the second part of the podcast, which is to talk about the tax gap. What's the tax gap? How does the ATO measure it? The story is this. Every year the ATO measures its revenue and compares that against the, the amount of revenue it should have made um, if every taxpayer was fully compliant. And as you may expect, most, most often the two numbers are different. And this, is, this discrepancy has become known as the tax gap. Now, the ATO's projected revenue total is based on the amount of tax theoretically payable in a given year. Um, assuming every taxpayer complies fully. Now, the actual amount of tax collected is always much less, of course. You'd, you would assume that. And the ATO says this is mostly due to, to a, a lot of you know, innocuous factors, I mean, administration expenses, um, employer obligations and so on. Um, of course, sometimes um, some shonky practices can increase that gap, you know, of course. Now, tax gaps uh, do help the ATO locate its administrative revenue leakages, actually, and it helps it in its work in fixing them. So according to the uh, tax office, uh, 
all estimates <clears throat> have multiple goals. Estimates of tax revenue have multiple goals, including the measuring of the types and levels of tax revenue losses from, from non-compliance, uh, providing a view of the overall effectiveness of the tax system over time, uh, to support efficiency in the allocation of resources and to support perceptions of fairness and transparency in um, <clears throat> tax administration's efforts. So the ATO says tax gaps are made, at least in part, by unintentional, careless or deliberate taxpayer actions that result in under-reporting of their tax obligations. <clears throat> the ATO says that as a result it collects less revenue than would otherwise have been the case. But of course some taxpayers overpay, not many but I'm sure there are, and the gap estimates net off overpayments and underpayments. For instance, well, there's different taxes, you know, there's GST, there's CGT, there's a whole lot of different sources of tax. Let's have a quick look at GST, for instance. Um, the difference between GST collected and the expected amount of GST that should have been collected in the ATO's mind, um, that is the GST tax gap. It's, it would be, it's an illustrative taxation area to, to look at in regard to tax gaps from the ATO data. Now, the expected revenue would, of course, assume that every eligible business would be collecting the revenue, uh, the required 10% GST, which was the rate introduced in, in the year 2000, and which hasn't changed since, uh, on every single purchase made over a financial year. Theoretically, 10% on every purchase. Um, that revenue would be balanced out by every eligible business claiming the relevant credits. But errors made by taxpayers... Uh, Errors such as not registering for GST, not charging GST on some items that should carry it, just oversights on claiming credits and a lot of other possible mistakes, naturally affect the net outcome of GST revenue collection. Now, the, the ATO's latest confirmed data is from 2016-17. It takes a while to, you know, get all the, all the chickens home. Uh, show that the GST net gap, that is the shortfall in revenue, was came in at a quite a quite a fair figure, 5.3 billion. Um, in percentage terms, this is a gap of 7.9 percent. This GST gap has, um, in percentage terms, from 2011 and 12, it was 8.1 percent. Uh, 2014-15, 7.4 percent. Uh, 2015-16, it jumped up to 8.7 percent, and then for 16-17, as I said, it's 7.9 percent. So it's always around about that, but it goes up and down. Dep depending on a lot of factors. Now, there are other areas of tax that the ATO makes calculations for, fuel excise, um, large corporate groups, PRY, PRYG withholding gap, um, superannuation guarantee gap, there's one, um, and other ones, tobacco tax and wine equalisation tax. Um, <clears throat> the tax off has, has a, uh, a summary of findings. If you're interested, you can go and look at that if you want. Again, if you email me, I'll... Uh, at podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. I'll, uh, I'll get that and I can send you a link. Uh, the ADO says tax gap estimates are best viewed as a trend over time, taking into account a considerable error margin. It, it does say that the absolute dollar gap, that $5.3 billion, as I said, should only ever be seen as a guide. I mean, you, you can never get... It, it's all theory to get 100% revenue from tax. Uh, of course, we all understand that uh, there are things that happen on the way for the money coming into the government that... Uh, change that figure. It actually, the ATO says that given the imprecision, uh, the International Monetary Fund recognises that tax gap estimates generally should not be used mechanically as performance indicators. So it says it's just a, just good to know, but they're not going to, to use that as, a, as a, um, an indicator that they, they act on. 
but also, tax, the ATO also concedes that tax gap measurements will, will never help it achieve full tax compliance. Um, so it basically is admitting that it'll be virtually impossible to close those tax gaps. Um, but they're, they're part of an estimate of um, the host of assessment processes designed to encourage compliance and build confidence in the system. So that's what the tax gap is, the amount that was expected to come in and the amount that actually comes in. It's just interesting to see where the, where the shortfalls are. Anyway, I hope that was uh, a little bit instructive. Thanks for bearing with me. Uh, please come again next time.